Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 as we continue our series through the book of John. For those of you who don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible underneath the chair in front of you and find that uh, John chapter 7 will be on page 894 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And as you open your Bibles and find that passage, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about this passage. Uh, It's one of the most famous passages that people think of when they think of uh, things that they've heard Jesus said. If someone's not even familiar with a lot of the Bible, very oftentimes they've heard of this passage. This passage is the passage of the woman who is caught in adultery, who who is brought to Jesus. And as you open your Bible and look there, uh, you'll see that this, the, the, the editors of the ESV put this, uh, this passage with double brackets uh, surrounding it. And e- even before you get to verse 53, you see a message there that says, The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. If you look at the bottom of your ESV, it also has a footnote there saying that some... Manuscripts do not include chapter 753 through 811. And then others, others add the passage hereafter 736 or 2125 or in Luke 2138. Um, and so to, to, to kind of introduce you to some of the uh, issues that are surrounding this text, I think it's, it's best to probably capture with, the, with two words, earliest and, which we saw right there, the earliest manuscripts not including it, and then in the footnote, some manuscripts not including it. And that kind of introduces you to the debate. We have found early manuscripts of the Greek text that do not include this passage. But by far, the majority of the texts that we have surviving to this day from Greek, even though they are uh, later than the earliest ones, do include it. And so, where do you go with? Do you go with those that are earlier, or do you go with those that are in the majority? And ultimately, I think we could admit that neither of those is necessarily a solid, you know, slam dunk case. Just because something is is older, a manuscript is older than another manuscript, doesn't necessarily mean its readings are, are correct. Also, just because a manuscript, uh, you know, it, that there's a lot more manuscripts that the reading is in the majority doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right reading. And so these are, these are kind of the, the issues that we are wrestling with when we uh, work with this passage. When manuscripts differ from one another in what they read, uh, we call that a, a, a textual variant. The text varies from another text that we have preserved. Uh, and so we have copies of the, of, of the books of the Bible, and some of those copies at certain places don't agree with one another. Now, to put that into context, the manuscripts that we have today uh, that have been preserved for us, that history decided to leave behind for us, the manuscripts that differ the most from each other still agree on 97% of their contents. So the manuscripts that are most different from each other are still in agreement on 97% of what they are containing. And so the the majority of of variants are spelling mistakes and errors like that. Uh, But then there are other variants where a different word is used or a different phrase or 
In, in, in the case of this passage, this is the largest, uh, one of the largest. This passage and the ending of Mark are the other two. So between uh, different phrases where they, they might be off by a word or two or whole phrase uh, to um, this passage included here, that's part of the 3% where they differ. So it's important for us to realize the text has been amazingly preserved and well-kept, and we have a, a wealth of resources uh, for, for our, our, our texts, uh, and our texts are in incredible agreement, 97% of what they, what they speak about, and in the 3% where they differ, they don't differ, and no major doctrine of Christianity is being supported by that small amount of texts that differ, but as you're preaching through expositorily through a text, you will come across some of the things in that 3%. And so we find ourselves in that 3% this morning. So what do we, you know, what do we do with it? Uh, I personally would, would lean towards um, it being original. Um, there's a strong case that can be made that it's, that it's not. Um, the evidence for the case that it's not is that, as I mentioned, some of those are uh, those early the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have um, do not contain it. Uh, Papyrus 66, 75, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus. If that means nothing to you, uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. But those are our, our earliest Greek papyri, and they don't, they don't include it. Those would be dated to about 225 to, to 400. Um, it's also not in the earliest versions of the Syriac or Coptic translations. And there's notable church fathers like Tertullian from the early 200s, Cyprian from the mid-200s, Oregon from the mid-200s, Chrysostom from the late 300s that, that don't mention the passage. And, and, and so that could seem uh, to, to favor the fact that it was not originally there. Um, in regards to evidence of it being there, we have uh, a Greek manuscript, not as early as the others, but Codex Beza from the 400s or 500s that does include it. But we also have the church historian Eusebius records Papias, who is himself a disciple of John, speaking about a woman accused uh, of many sins before the Lord. So that's potentially first century uh, evidence. Um, also, we have a Syriac document called the Didascalia Apostolum, or the Teaching of the Apostles, typically dated to around the 200s, uh, that refers and gives a summary of the passage of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, also, we have Passion, uh, a bishop in Spain who mentions the passage in, in around 360. Ambrose, bishop of Milan, Italy, uh, in the late 300s, cites the passage at length and mentions that it's a famous passage even in his day. Uh, Ambrosiaster in mid-300s men mentions it. Uh, Jerome, who is uh, the one who ended up translating and uh, uh, revising the Latin edition and produced the Latin Vulgate, uh, was himself mentions that in his day that there were ancient manuscripts that he used, ancient Greek manuscripts in his day, which around the late 300s, so whatever is ancient in the late 300s that he had access to, he's saying that some of them uh, included it and, and also that some, some did not. And, but in his version, he included it. So he gave his, his, his thumbs up there. We also have Did Didymus the Blind in the late 300s uh, mentions the passage of the woman caught in adultery as being in certain Gospels. Uh, Augustine, in the late 300s, has sermons on it, uh, but he recognizes that in his day some manuscripts had it and others did not. He says that his personal theory was that uh, the passage was being removed 
by men who, sought, who thought that their wives would use it as a pretense to be excused of adultery. Uh, so bottom line, whether it was added or removed, it had to have happened really early, which makes it an interesting thing. Um, and, and bottom line, the total number of Greek gospel manuscripts that we have today in our possession uh, that don't contain it is 267. The number of known Greek gospel manuscripts that do contain it, or at least some portion of it, is 1,476. And so again, in favor of it being excluded and not original would be these early manuscripts, possibly. And in favor of it being included in original would be the majority of these manuscripts. But neither of those is necessarily a, a, a slam dunk. Um, those, one thing that those who disagree on this being original or not can agree on is that while it might not have been original John, it does seem to be something that Jesus really did. And, and all, all sides of the, the, the argument would agree that this is something that Jesus really did, uh, that if it's not by John, it's early church tradition that was preserved for us. Um, and uh, so, once again, I lean right now towards thinking it was original, but uh, my study in this area is far from done. I'd love to continue to dig into the, this issue some more. Uh, but I think all of us can agree with Calvin, whether you think, uh, wherever you land on this issue. Calvin says that, it is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches, and some conjecture that it was brought from some other places and inserted here. But, as it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. Amen? So let's apply it to our advantage this morning. John chapter 7, verse 53 to 811. The word of God reads, They went each to his own house, but, John, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now excuse me, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to learn about Christ, to see him for who he is, to understand marvelous things about his person and his work and help us to see the Messiah in his wisdom and his justice. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe in him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live like him. Help us to be just 
like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Justice is a hot topic of our day. Many pride themselves on being just and making great strides for justice. They even deem themselves noble judges who know truth from error. They seem to know abuse when they see it, and they're ready to call it out and be impartial and maintain justice and equity for all. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes thought of themselves too. We have in our Pledge of Allegiance the statement that we pledge allegiance to the flag uh, of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, and it says this, with liberty and justice for all. And I think most of us say that's a great statement. Liberty and justice for all. I'm on board with that. That sounds good. But who's defining liberty and who's defining justice? What does justice and liberty really look like? And what does, it ma- what does it look like to maintain justice? Who determines what is just? You can ask different people, and different people may disagree on what they consider to be just or unjust. And so the issues of legality and morality are some of the most difficult yet important issues that we face. And those in Jesus' day face them as well. But there is a clear expectation that when the Messiah comes, he would be supremely wise and just. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, prophesied of the Messiah coming from the line of of David. It said uh, that he shall come forth from a shoot, from the the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And listen to this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And hear this. He shall not judge by what he sees, or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The best judges we have fall short of that in major ways. And the places where we would most often look for justice in man's court, in the civil arena, we often see justice fall short or justice fail or justice perverted in the very place where it should be upheld because sinful men occupy those courts. Fallible men occupy those courts. Ignorant men, men who don't know all the details, occupy those courts. Those courts are a gift, and the, the task of maintaining upholding justice is a gift, but it is not one that we accomplish perfectly in our sinfulness, and it's why we need a savior. It's why we need a judge. It's why we need a king, one who is perfect, one who is all-knowing, one who is righteous, one who is just. That is what we need. We need Jesus, and we need people who are going to be just, who are going to be righteous advocates, as Jesus was. So I want us to see three pillars of biblical justice that I think Jesus masterfully upholds in this text so that we will believe in him as Messiah and do justice in the midst of an unjust world. One of my favorite verses, Micah 6, 8. You guys probably are familiar with it. But it, it, it speaks about 
asks the question of, of what does God require? And it says, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And I think that that's exactly what Jesus demonstrates for us in this text. So the first pillar of biblical justice masterfully upheld by Jesus is civil justice. Civil justice. Jesus is uh, in the temple. He has gone up midway through the Feast of the Tabernacles to Jerusalem in John chapter 7. There's great debate going on about the identity of Jesus. People are trying to figure out who he is. The, the, the Pharisees and the religious elite are, are looking down at these, these common folk who think that he might actually be the Messiah and are, and, and are saying, you know, they're cursed. They don't even know the law. They don't even have the credentials to be able to identify the Messiah. Meanwhile, they themselves are blind to who he really is. And all throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8, we're seeing over and over, if you just read those, that the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests are trying to get Jesus killed. They want to put him to death. And that is what they are attempting to do because they don't, they don't think he's the Messiah. They reject him as the Messiah. And he's a political threat to them. And so they want to do away with him. And so Jesus, though, uh, we see in, 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 in our text, was left from the temple, went up to the Mount of Olives to spend the night there, and then early in the morning, again, he came back to the temple. And the text says that all the people came to him, which is an amazing statement. You know, word of him has spread. He is famous. He is well-known and people want to hear what he has to say. People are talking and debating about him. He's the conversation that people are having. And seeing him in the temple, the people surround him. And there, there's a, a large crowd there. And it says Jesus sat down and taught them. What might he be teaching them? Well, before, he stood up in the midst of the crowd and he, he shouted to them, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus is teaching, he's presenting himself as the only one who can meet the spiritual needs of God's people. He's presenting himself as the Messiah. And he's offering salvation and hope to those who turn from their sin and believe him. This is his teaching. But in the midst of this teaching, with a large crowd and the most public place, the most central place in the temple, this is an opportune time for the scribes and the Pharisees to come and to try to trap him. And they do this on a number of different occasions. Another occasion, they, they try to trap Jesus by saying, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Knowing that if Jesus says, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar, then all the Jews are going to think he's a traitor. And knowing if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they can say, oh, look at this rebel. We should kill him. Insurrectionist. And very similarly, we have this same thing happening in this passage. They were finding a way, verse 6 tells us, that to find some charge that they might test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so in the midst of Jesus' teaching, they interrupt him. They interrupt him, and it, it's, it had to have been such a just violent scene to, to have this woman dragged in front, and then for them to announce that she's an adulteress in front of all the people, and then ask Jesus to weigh in on the situation. 
They bring the woman. They, they put her in the midst, and they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? And it says, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so they're acting like they want to uphold the law of Moses. And that they're really concerned for justice. What a, what a horrible thing that this woman has committed adultery. She must be punished. And they want Jesus to weigh in. Because they know that no matter how Jesus answers this question, they can use it against him. Because they're thinking in their head, if Jesus agrees with Moses, then we can say that he's breaking Roman law. Because Roman law said that Jews did not have the right to exercise capital punishment. Roman law also said that uh, adulterers could not be put to death. It was not a capital offense according to Roman law to commit adultery. And so if Jesus agrees with Moses that she should be stoned for adultery, that's the righteous punishment, and he commends that, then he's in trouble with Rome and they can accuse him and they can kill him. But if he disagrees with Moses then surely he's ignorant or worse, he's, he's an imposter and he opposes Moses, in which case he cannot be the Messiah. So either way that they, Jesus responds to this could be big trouble for him. But nothing's big trouble for Jesus. They say to Jesus that this woman has been caught in the act of adultery and now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. That's a reference to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with, his wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both, of, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And let me just pause there because we are such a licentious culture that we have the hardest time even comprehending that God would require at any time adultery to be punished civilly with death. Adultery is hideous in God's sight. It is an abomination. It is wicked. It is immoral. It completely shatters and destroys and robs. It breaks the marriage covenant. It steals another man or another woman's spouse. It undercuts community. It, it ruins families. It ruins children. It does so much harm that God said when he redeemed his people out of Israel and brought them into the promised land that they shall not commit adultery. And if they do, this was the punishment for it. If they didn't like that, they didn't have to say all that the Lord says we will do. They could have walked back to Egypt. They could have tried to make their way back through the wilderness. But this was the law for the land that God was giving them, where he was to reign as king. And his laws were to be righteous laws that they kept. Adultery deserves death, is what God says. That's what he says. That's how wrong it is. That's what the law of Moses teaches. But all that to say, they're quoting Leviticus 20, 
And did you notice the difference between the scenario and what we just read in Leviticus 20? They say that, that woman, a woman like this shall die. Moses commanded us to stone such women. And in the verse they're referencing, the verse says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, what key word? Both. Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Where's the man? <laughs> Where's the man? How do you, how do you, one, hold up. One, how do you, <laughs> any, for any, according to the law, any, any crime to be established has to be established by two or three witnesses. How do you accidentally two or three people stumble upon a couple committing adultery? That's number one. That's pretty rare. Unless, which a lot of commentaries actually think, it was set up by them. Which in case if they set up, then they would be malicious witnesses because they were, knew ahead of time what was going to happen. They didn't get involved to stop it. And so they were complicit in the crime. And if they're going to condemn someone else for crime, they're complicit in. The scriptures talk about that. That person then would receive the penalty that they intended to inflict on another. You don't mess around with things like that. So, it, so that was number one. How do they do that? And then two, how do you catch a couple committing adultery and only bring the woman? We, he just he got away. <laughs> he, he ran too fast. You know, like, you, you, didn't, you did not, how do you only have a woman here? And so there's just a number of things about this that are, that are sketchy. They're just, it's off. It's not, if you're really concerned about justice, really concerned about the law of Moses and doing what it says, you would have both of them here both of them here. So we don't know if there's been impartiality. We don't know if there's been some shady plotting and planning. I don't know uh, if they were in cahoots with the guy. Catch her. We could use her. We, we'll bring her to Jesus. We don't know all the details of this thing, but we do know that something's off. Something's not right about this. And Jesus understands this. And John tells us this was, uh, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And again, what is the charge they're trying to do? They're essentially using this situation, not because they care about justice, not because they really care about her being punished, but merely because they want to catch and kill Jesus. They're setting up, as Pastor Kevin called it, a kangaroo court which is a shady court. It's a court that jumps over, over evidence and hoops, and it's not, it doesn't keep the, the true due process that, that people require. It's not an official court. And they're setting up this whole thing just for the purpose of condemning Jesus, finding him, finding, uh, trapping him into saying something that they can use to kill him. It's a political power move. It's a stunt. They're trying to catch him. But what would Jesus say? How would Jesus pass this test? What would he say to them? Jesus doesn't say anything at first. The text says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And he, he bends down and starts writing on the ground with his finger. And, and I mean, you should see the theories that people have about what did he write? I think I came across like 45 different ideas, you know? Uh, so I might as well throw mine in there too, right? 
Why, what if he wrote Micah 6.8? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Did he write that? I have no idea. Probably not. <laughs> what did he write? We don't know. But he gets down in the ground and he starts writing. Is it possible that he's ignoring him? Maybe. Is it, is it, it, could he be writing out a rebuke to them? Could he be writing out their sins? Could he be writing out the name of the guy? Could he be, you know, he could be doing a lot of things. We don't know. Could he be writing out other scripture verses? Very possibly, but we don't know. All we know is he doesn't answer them immediately. He bends down and writes on the ground and he seems to be ignoring them. And so verse seven says, as they continued to ask him, they're like, Jesus, Jesus is drawing. Jesus. <laughs> what do you say, Jesus? Still drawing. Jesus, what, what do you say? Like, imagine just like the, being in a crowd and that happening. And finally, Jesus stands up. And he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And I can guarantee you that that was not in the scribes and Pharisees' playbook. They weren't anticipating this statement. They weren't expecting this. The scene is tense. It's in public. It's full of, in, inside of a large crowd. All the people are gathered. The teaching session is interrupted. The sermon has been stalled in an, in an effort to turn the classroom into a courtroom and use a guilty woman to find a way to condemn the innocent Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus knows the law of Moses. Jesus knows the law of Moses forbids adultery with the strongest terms. Jesus knows that the woman is guilty of adultery. Jesus knows that the law of Moses requires that in the case of adultery, both the man and the woman must die. Jesus knows the law of Moses requires that there be two or three witnesses and that the witness's hand be the first to initiate the stoning. Jesus knows the law of Rome, that adultery is not a crime punishable by death. Jesus knows the law of Rome, that capital punishment is lawful to be enforced by Jews. Jesus knows the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they are not zealous for justice in this case, nor zealous for the law, but merely acting like it so they can accuse and condemn Jesus. Jesus knows this is a kangaroo court and he must answer with wisdom. He knows all these things, and probably many more things are in his mind. And I think, amazingly, Jesus' response finds a way to account for all of these things. And he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If the Pharisees know that they've taken part in a plan, if the Pharisees had taken part in a plan to set this thing up, and catch this woman so that they could use her in this plot against Jesus, then they know that they're in sin here. Pharisees also know the law of Moses requires both the man and the woman. They only have the woman. They are in sin here. Pharisees are reminded by Jesus, and now remember that as witnesses, it's, it would be their duty first to initiate the stoning. But if they do that, then they're in potential big trouble with Rome likely to be put to death themselves. Pharisees know that they've had malicious motives to trap Jesus. They're in sin here. Whatever the sin that Jesus talk, is talking about here, the response is clear that none of them deems themselves worthy or willing to pursue the issue further since 
it would potentially get them into big, big trouble. Which goes to show that the trap that they try to set for Jesus is one that they themselves are caught in. And they leave not upholding the law of Moses. But they do leave not breaking the law of Rome. Jesus is wise in his response. And he upholds Jewish law. He upholds Roman law. He exposes the sinfulness of the Jewish leaders. And he leaves the ball in their court and says, your move. And what do they do after that Jesus says once more he bent down a road on the ground. Again, we don't know what Jesus was writing. But my personal made-up theory, if it was Micah 6.8, <laughs> act, do justice, love, mercy, and then, and then walk humbly. Maybe at verse 8, that second time he goes, walk humbly with your God. I don't know. I'm in that. <laughs> but walk humbly with your God. They go away in silence. They go away in silence. Look at what it says here. When they heard it, not, notice not what he wrote in the ground, but what he said to them. When they heard it. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus passes the test by upholding the woman's rights under the law of Moses and under the law of Rome. How he did that is, is truly amazing. Jesus' statement, neither do I condemn you, seems to be referring to the civil accusations brought against her. And this is a crazy thing, that while being guilty of adultery without the accusers, she is free to go, even though she's guilty. She can walk. Jesus' wisdom outwits his opponents, upholds just civil justice even for a guilty person. And it should be clear for us that he's operating with the wisdom that only the Messiah has. We should run to him and, and see his wisdom and, 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 and run to him and believe in him. And we also, who have believed in him, should seek to live like him. And so if we're to think about doing justice, it has to take place in the civil arena. It has to take place in the court of law. That is a primary area. If we are ever asked to bear testimony, we have to speak the truth and be people of the truth. Truth. We should have nothing to do with any kangaroo courts. We should have nothing to do with jumping over evidence. Nothing to do with being prejudiced or deciding ahead of time what we think the judgment is without assessing the evidence, we should have nothing to do with shortcutting any legal process, even if we know the person's guilty. We need people like that who speak the truth, who do not bear false witness, who do not scam or plan or attempt to manipulate legal proceedings for their own benefit or to crush their political opponents. We need more people like Jesus. Jesus would have none of that, and neither should us who follow him. Jesus upheld, masterfully upheld civil justice. Secondly, 
The second pillar of justice that Jesus masterfully upholds in this situation is personal righteousness. There's a lot of people who, if you bring them to court, they're like, that's a big deal. I'm going to make sure that I do everything I have to, do it all right. But they go home, and they're lying, and they're stealing, and they're cheating. And you bring it to court, and like, oh, I put my hand on that Bible. I had to, you know, it's like, but at home... What's going on? In your personal life, every other day you know, of the year, you don't act with the same ethic. You don't act with the same righteousness, the same righteous standard. And that's wrong. That's hypocritical. That's evil. Jesus upholds this second pillar of justice, personal righteousness. And he requires it, and notice, in the story of the Pharisees, of the woman, and in himself, he exemplifies it. Does Jesus sin in this story? No. If you knew the types of things that Jesus knew, that these guys were just trying to trap you and so that they could kill you, would you have responded with the measured words of what Jesus said to them? I think I would have sent a lightning bolt. Anyone else? I would have lightning bolted them. Jesus says, he who is without sin be the first to cast the stone at her. He requires personal righteousness of them, a righteousness they had not maintained in their motives, not maintained in the procedures, and couldn't maintain in the punishment. They're all messed up. And so it, it, it boggles my mind, although I get why people do it, but some people walk away from this text thinking that Jesus condones adultery and sin. Not at all. Not at all. He upholds personal righteousness. He requires it. He never condones sin. He always impartially commands and requires personal righteousness. Notice what he says to the woman. Even though she is, he does not civilly condemn her, he tells her to go and sin no more. How do you take go and sin no more to mean Jesus condones sin? <laughs> you can't unless you completely ignore the context of the stuff that has come before. Jesus requires righteousness. He embodies righteousness. And if we're going to have a just society, you know what you need? Not just people who are acting righteous in court, but people who are in their day-to-day -day lives living righteous lives. If people lived righteous lives in their day-to-day -day lives, you would empty the courts. You would even need the courts. Because people would be doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with their God. So Jesus requires personal righteousness. He says, go and sin no more. He's essentially telling her to repent. Repent. Go and sin no more. I like what J.C. Ryle says here. He says that in this we have a lesson about the true nature of repentance. And he says that repentance, he says that repentance which consists in nothing more than feeling, talking, professing, wishing, meaning, hoping, and resolving is worthless. That repentance which consists in nothing more than feeling, 
talking, professing, wishing, meaning, hoping, and resolving is worthless in God's sight. Turn from your sin. Go and sin no more. It's not that you're going to do that perfectly, but acknowledge who Christ is. Believe in him and pattern your life after him. And with his spirit dwelling in you, you can overcome all of these things and more. You don't just hope for it. You don't just resolve for it. But by the power of Christ, you do it. You don't have to be an adulterer. You can walk in holiness in that area. You don't have to be a murderer. But we do recognize that these sins are deep sins in our heart. That even Jesus would say that the person who's looked with lust has committed adultery in his heart. The person who has hated their neighbor has murdered them in their heart. And so this repentance is not a sinlessness, a walk of perfect sinlessness. But it is a walk that looks more and more like Jesus. It is a walk that transforms a person's life so that they live and act differently. And that they see considerable victory, tremendous victory over these sorts of sins. Jesus does not condone sin. He requires repentance. And talk about sin brings us to the the, the fact that Justice is not only about the wrongs we have done to each other. Man sins against man sins. But when we speak about sin, we're coming to realize that justice is about also the wrongs that we have done to God. Who is the famous adulterer in the Bible? David. David. David, David says in Psalm 51, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, after, after he's murdered her, her husband, against you and you only have I sinned, speaking to the Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. Did he also sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he also sin against Uriah? Of course. But his biggest problem was that he had sinned against the God of heaven, his creator, his maker, the one who had given him everything in his life. He had committed high-handed treason and rebellion against his God. Justice is about far more than our relationship with each other, although it is that. But talk about sin pulls us to realize and forces us to realize that justice is also about the glory of God. That's why David says against you and you only have I sinned. It's amazing that while personal righteousness is required, there is this understanding that even the best of us And the most righteous among us are still falling far short of the glory of God, and we do it daily. Romans chapter 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you were to just look at this passage, isn't that a perfect illustration? What do we see in this passage? The religious elite. Are they righteous? No, they've fallen short of the glory of God. This adulterer, is she righteous? No, she's fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what about Jesus? He's perfectly sinless. 
He upholds and is the image of the glory of God. And so we should copy him. We should live for him. We should trust him. We should see his character. We should see his wisdom. We should see his justice. We should see his mercy. We should see his grace. And we should turn to him and believe in him. He is our creator according to John chapter 1. That all things were made through him. And that he came into this world, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But, hear this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You will never attain the personal, perfect righteousness of Christ. But you can have it counted to you. By faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be declared righteous. To have the perfect righteousness of Christ put into your account so that when God sees you, he sees you as if you live the perfect righteous life of Jesus. And that's why we read in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Isn't it a wonderful illustration, our, pa our passage of that? He did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But we have to note very carefully the next words. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you will believe in Christ, then you will receive a status of no condemnation. He will say, not just of your civil failures and your civil penalty, neither do I condemn you. But in regard to the eternal penalty and final penalty that you deserve for your sins that will make the difference of you going to hell or going to heaven for all the rest of eternity. Neither do I condemn you. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. It's this grace that motivates righteousness, righteous living for Christ. It's this grace that Jesus has been teaching about. It's this grace that he offers. The, the fact that, that he calls people to repent of sin implies that there's grace for them. There's hope for them. And if they come to them, if they come to him, then they will be made new. They will be forgiven. This leads to our last pillar of biblical justice that Jesus masterfully upholds. And that's this idea of final justice. If, if you think that you have an understanding of justice, but it's not a type of justice that is, is, is gloriously representing God in the civil court arena, and it's a justice that doesn't really apply in your personal life, you can kind of just do what you want to do, then you have no justice at all as far as the Bible is concerned. This last pillar is final justice. Final justice is like the great support to the other ones. Because 
what assures us when the courts fail? What assures us when people fail or when people, people succeed in deceiving others and get away, as far as the court's eyes are concerned, with great evils? Or when there is only one witness and so there was insufficient evidence and yet the person committed horrible wrongs? What is it that can still enable people like us who have been wronged in those sorts of ways to still sleep at night? It's final justice. And if your view of justice does not include final justice with Jesus as the judge himself, then you have no justice at all. Because final justice makes sure to not miss anything. Final justice before the Lord Jesus when he comes as judge which he didn't do in his first coming. When he comes as judge, he will judge. He will see all sin. He will have all the witness, all the testimony, all the evidence that he needs to perfectly and always convict. He will never get any of it wrong, and he will not fall short in any way. This assures us that there will be true justice in the world on that final day. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter five. He said, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. And an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If you jump over to John chapter 12, Jesus says, if anyone hears my words, and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. So what is he saying here? He's saying here, he is here, grace upon grace. The law came through Moses, John chapter 1 says, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is there saying, I am the coming judge. I am the Messiah. I am your Savior. But if you reject his words, he says, I'm not going to slay you right now. I'm not going to condemn you right now. There's grace for you to turn, to repent, and to be made right with me because I am coming and on that day, if you have not repented and you've not trusted in me, you will be condemned. Jesus masterfully upholds final justice. We see that in the text because he tells the woman to go and sin no more. If there's no final day of justice, she's exited the court. She's, ex she's exited the only, you know, courtroom there is if there's no final justice. And what does it matter what she does after that? But there's a higher court. There's a heavenly court that all of us are going to have to stand in. And none of us will have the ability to stand in our own righteousness, but only as we've thrown ourselves on the mercy and grace of God given through the gift of his son. Acts 17.31 says that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This should be 
a sobering reality, but also a hope-stirring reality to think that this day has not come yet. And the only reason that day has not come is because his hour to judge has not yet come which means the hour to repent and to believe and to be saved is still here. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here and you haven't believed in Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day to turn from your sin and believe in him and trust in him and walk in him and to be just like Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for what we've sung this morning, for what we were able to preach this morning and hear this morning. We thank you for being, Lord Jesus, a man of sorrows. You are a man of sorrows, Lord. And as the song says, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord Jesus, please help every person here to turn to you and believe and be saved and have their pardon sealed with your blood. And those, Lord, who have had your par- our pardons sealed, for those of us who have had the wrath of God satisfied because of your death, Lord Jesus, help us to walk and uphold justice the very same way that you did. In the, in, the, in the realm of civil justice, in the realm of our own personal lives, and righteous living, and anticipating and warning others of final judgment and of the grace of God that is being extended as sinners are continuing to be invited to be saved so that they can be with you for all eternity so that they can hear that you don't condemn them on that final day. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.